We want to remind you, this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We return to our interview with the attorney, author, and podcast creator, Lance Cooper. Enjoy. Well, I want to remind folks that we are visiting with the attorney and, and historian, Lance Cooper. And Lance, I don't think I properly introduced that your master's was in, was it in history? Yes, it's in American history. Yeah. And I think that's important because speaking with you off air and listening to your podcast, it's very clear that you are quite an established historian and not just a legal expert. And I think the, the combination is a very powerful one. So we really appreciate you being our guest on Bringing Light into Darkness today. I wanted to move on within that very same episode, that episode eight of your podcast, Pain and Fear. And it basically also overviews physical and emotional brutality faced by the enslaved Texans. So we've been talking a little bit about the pseudo-legal protections or lack of protections that allowed this brutality nonsense to go on. But I wanted to also, before we go to this eight-minute excerpt from that episode, ask you to talk about when the law said, you know, you could be charged with unbecoming conduct in the presence of a white woman, such as being found drunk or saying something. Can you elaborate a little bit more? It seems like just as you just indicated that the law has language that really it depends on the interpretation of the people at that time, what types of protections or lack of protections African-American slaves had at that time. Can you talk just a little bit more of what unbecoming conduct looked like? Sure. I guess my first point would be in a non-slave society, you know, unbecoming conduct, what is that? I mean, that to me, that immediately sounds unconstitutionally vague. Right. But, you know, we're, again, we have to look at this situation through the lens of a slave society. It's sort of at times an upside down kind of world. You know, any form of disrespect, really, I suppose that's what it boils down to. Um, Do they not tip their hat? Do they not move out of the way when they're walking toward a white woman? You know, really anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to defend a case like that, that again, where the statute is is so vague. So it's just an example of of how these laws, what they were really designed to do was just to to hem in the behavior and conduct of enslaved people Mm -hmm. in a way to keep them under control, under the thumb of slave owners. Right. Which, which, again, kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about Haiti, because these slave owners, you know, there's a great deal of apprehension and fear that they're going to lose control. If they lose control, either they're going to suffer violence or they're going to lose the ability to make all this money off of cotton. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's go ahead and play this eight minute excerpt. It's really the last eight minutes of this very powerful episode number eight, Pain and Fear that you have it at your podcast location, which we'll be sharing with our audience you know, before the show ends here for sure. But I wanted to pick up where this Solomon Northrup, this author of some 12 years of slaves, you know, is explaining and you're sharing the horrific experiences and rules, if you will, around whippings and using dogs to terrorize blacks. And all this terror was used in order to, at the end of the day, as you've indicated in your podcast, to extract the most labor possible out of black slaves. So let's listen to that. Solomon Northrup, the author of 12 Years a Slave, recalled his experience with the whip in Louisiana. Quote, 
The number of lashes is graduated according to the offense. Twenty-five are deemed a mere brush, inflicted, for instance, when a dry leaf or a piece of a bowl is found in the cotton, or when a branch is broken in the field. Fifty is the ordinary penalty following all the delinquencies of the next higher grade. One hundred is called severe. It is punishment inflicted for the serious offense of standing idle in the field. There was widespread literature in the South, various periodicals that plantation owners read, about how to create the most productive farm. Extracting the most labor from enslaved workers was a frequent topic. This points up that Northrop's testimony can be a bit deceiving in one way. The notion that certain conduct would lead to a particular physical response from an overseer, as if the abuse received by enslaved people were always well-thought-through assessments of which level of pain would lead to the most efficient extraction of labor. This was not the case in practice. Although the whip was commonly used across the South, its widespread use should not suggest that there was some sort of, dare I say, science to its use. Not all quote-unquote punishments involved whippings. As Ida Henry of Harrison County recalled, Slaves was punished when they didn't do as much work as the overseer wanted them to do. When a slave was hard to catch for punishment, they would make him wear ball and chains. The ball was about the size of the head and made of lead. Enslaved workers fitted with a ball and chain had to drag the weight down the rows as they picked cotton. Another device, the bell rack, was a noisy apparatus designed to hinder runaway attempts. In his WPA interview, Kerry Davenport of Walker County described this device. I never knew of them putting bales on the slaves on our places, but over next to us they did. They had a piece that went around their shoulders and around their necks, with pieces up over their heads, and hung up the bell on the piece over the head. The rack was an iron rod that was strapped to the shoulder or lower back and neck of an enslaved person and ran upward to a couple of feet or so above the head. A bell was attached to the top and clanged whenever the person moved. It's kind of a difficult thing to imagine, so I suggest you go to a search engine and type Bell Rack Library of Congress. They have a photo there of a fellow with one on. Bell racks weren't always used for runaways. J.W. Terrell of Madisonville was forced to wear one because his owner, who was also his father, seemed to hate being reminded of his mixed-race son's existence. My father was my mother's master. He was mean to me. He made me wear a bell strapped around my shoulder with the bell about three feet from my head in a steel frame. This was my punishment for being born into the world, the son of a white man, and my mother a slave. Terrell told his WPA interviewer that he never knew what it was like to lie down in bed and get a good night's sleep until his father died and the rack was removed. Other enslaved people had a buck and gag strapped to their head. John White described it to his WPA interviewer as maybe worse than the whip. He recalled how the gag's iron stick jammed into his mouth, pressing hard against his tongue. The device was secured by a chain around his head. With such a thing strapped to him, there was, in White's words, no drinking, no eating, no talking. The buck and gag and bell rack devices were crafted for slavery, but other, simpler devices had the advantage of being handy. A sample of such instruments used by Texas slave owners to inflict pain ranged from a wooden paddle with nails in it to clubs, to farm implements, to buckets, to hand saws, to quirts, to firearms, to boards, to stone jars, to sticks, to logs, to switches, to turkey wing fans, to fists, to cooking utensils, to, again, really anything that was handy 
and could cause pain. The types of pain inflicted also varied widely on Texas farms. Some that Texans endured included being hanged, being shot, being branded, being stabbed in the head with a fork, having their fingers cut off, having their heads put in stocks, having dogs set on them, having their ears burned off, having their ears cut off, having their ears grabbed so their heads could be slammed into a wall, and so on. Alan Manning of Coriel County related an incident to his interviewer that highlighted a particular horror faced by enslaved people, the use of dogs. Manning belonged to a Baptist preacher in Mississippi who brought him to Texas. When it was time to leave Mississippi, one of the preacher's enslaved workers, Andy, couldn't be found. When Andy eventually appeared, the preacher, angry at Andy's absence, told him that if he could make it to the big tree down at the gate before the hounds got him, he could stay there and watch everyone else leave for Texas. So Andy, with no other choice, took off. He made it to the tree and got hold of the bottom limb when the hounds grabbed him and pulled him down. By the time the preacher got there, Andy was rolling on the ground, holding his shirt up around his throat. The preacher pushed the dogs away and proceeded to beat Andy with a cat of nine tails. Andy was then taken to Texas. The use of dogs to run down enslaved people was common in Texas, as in other southern states. Bert Luster told his interviewer that it, quote, seems like I can hear them hounds barking now. Many white Texans prided themselves on training dogs to track and bring down people. Some profited by charging slave owners for the use of their dogs. Green Cumbie of Rusk County remembered this vividly. There was a white man called Henderson who had 60 bloodhounds and rented them out to run slaves. I well recollect the hounds running through our place one night. The patrollers, they chased me plenty of times. But I was lucky because they never caught me. The patrol system was set up by the Texas legislature in 1846. Under this law, the county courts would appoint a patrol consisting of a captain and five privates for each district or division in their county. The members had the authority to search suspected places for slaves who were off their owner's property without a pass. Lewis Bonner remembered how slave patrols would travel from, quote, plantation to plantation during the nights with dogs, guns, and whips. They would sick the hounds on the slaves and sometimes tear them up before they could get them off him. Let's conclude with a memory that Annie Hawkins shared with her interviewer. Old master stayed drunk all the time. I reckon that is the reason he was so fetched mean. My, how we hated him. He finally killed himself drinking. And I remember old mistress called us in to look at him in his coffin. We all marched by him slow-like, and I just happened to look up and caught my sister's eye, and we both just naturally laughed. Why shouldn't we? We was glad he was dead. It's a good thing we had our laugh, for old mistress took us out and whipped us with a broomstick. She didn't make us sorry, though. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll talk about family, music, and spiritual beliefs. In other words, the ways that enslaved Texans dealt with what we've discussed in this episode. I hope you'll join me next time on the other side of the story. That was a very powerful eight minutes. First, before we go any further, Lance, if people want to access your podcast, how can they access them? You can go to the website for the podcast. 
the other side of the story, slavery in Texas, and that's at theothersideachingsixtyfive.com, or just go to Apple or Spotify or um, TuneIn or Google Podcasts. You know, just any of these places where you can listen, and you'll be able to find it there. Well, listen, we just listened to an incredibly powerful and very depressing part of our history, but I think as a celebration of Juneteenth, we really need to celebrate and not run away from or hide from the Black experience during slavery. And I really appreciate your leading us through that in today's show. Solomon Northrup's the author of 12 Years of Slaves, describes these horrific experiences and rules, if you will, around whippings. But again, can you highlight that inhumane in this egregious and horrific type of thing of whipping another human being, yet somehow we want during that period to present laws and codes that somehow either sanitized it or had certain rules around it. Can you highlight that particular issue of whippings a little bit more for us and what you found most powerful in the eight minutes that we just played? Sure. And really hearing that voiceover again by Annie Hawkins, I was just so struck by that, that excerpt when I first read that where she concludes she didn't make us sorry though and that entire excerpt just speaks to what what you're talking about and also the sense of control so when this vicious man the slave owner finally died the mistress his wife forced the enslaved workers to march by the coffin all slow and and act like they're sad you know she wants again to control not only their physical movements but to control how they feel and what I found so amazing about Ms. Hawkins is she said no, you know, she rejected that. And, and back then, that didn't mean she and her sister were going to get a talking to or get grounded or something. I mean, they, they suffered a beating, but it didn't make them sorry. You know, she remained true to herself, uh, you know, despite this kind of treatment. But as far as whippings generally in this, this excerpt that, that your listeners have just heard, I did want to say this really is, it, it's grim. And this is the grimmest section in the grimmest episode in this podcast. There there are eight episodes out now, there will be 12. But this topic of physical abuse and the legal basis for it was something that I felt like we had to deal with or I had to, to deal with in the podcast because if you read the Works Progress Administration testimonies carried out of formerly enslaved Texans in the 1930s, if you read through them one after another, it's Violence is throughout the testimonies, throughout these interviews. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have to deal with it if, if you want to honor their memory. And so in this episode, that's, that's what we're doing. And so, again, it's really disturbing material. But the whippings that, that Solomon Northrop was talking about, it, it's all about control and trying to extract free labor out of uh, enslaved people. And I wanted to include... And I should back up a little bit and say, when I started working on this podcast, I realized that I'm not the guy to give voice to these testimonies, these excerpts that I have throughout the podcast. These, these are the formerly enslaved Texans. They're speaking for themselves. And so I've, I've hired uh, Texas actors from across the state. They're usually uh, like theater majors, uh, different universities, some faculty, uh, to really bring these to life. And that, that's what you heard in this episode. Right. Um, because this is, again, it's, it's very difficult 
material, but I wanted folks to understand that this is actually what was happening and what it was like to go through this sort of beating. And the fact that often these beatings occurred intentionally in the presence of other enslaved workers and enslaved children, because they were making the point, if you get out of line, this is coming for you. Right. Yeah, I think it's very important that people, again, know what that history is and are forced to hear that history. We make it seem like slaves got whipped and that type of thing, but but your presentation in there really gives you a much better understanding of what it is to get whipped to near death and then how they were able to inhibit the bleeding and all of that to keep from them dying, but with salt and all of these other things and such. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think it's a very worthy podcast that you have put together. I have not heard, but just a fraction of it. And it's very well done, I think. And to kind of wrap up the show, since we only have a few more minutes of time, I just wanted to ask you, this is Juneteenth. And from your perspective as a historian and your powerful podcast history that you lay out there for public consumption, what are some Juneteenth reflections that you feel are important to include in this Bringing Light into Darkness show? You know, I was thinking as you were introducing this episode, you talked about the slow spread of equality throughout the United States. That really resonated with me because it reminded me of the slow spread of the word of emancipation across Texas. So when General Granger shows up in Galveston and releases this order stating that, hey, the Emancipation Proclamation now applies throughout Texas, you're free. That did not mean that everyone in Texas was immediately free. Because remember back then, there's no radio, there's no TV, no internet, and the word tended to spread very slowly across the state. So many slave owners, although they may have heard about it, they didn't tell their workers about this, sometimes for up to a year, because they wanted to get a crop in, another crop or two, because this was in June, and so the cotton plants were coming up, and it was going to be time to harvest them pretty soon, and that's a lot of money. And many slave owners did not want to pay their workers. They wanted to continue with this system of uh, what was free labor for the slave owners. Mm. Well, other than purchasing the people, unpaid labor is probably the better term. And so also, this is kind of a difficult thing to get your mind around, but what does freedom mean to an enslaved person? Someone who has been typically denied the ability to read, to a great extent denied news of the broader world. And then one day, either because Union soldiers rode up and said, hey, you can't keep these people enslaved, or, you know, some slave owners were upfront about this, and they did tell their enslaved workers, suddenly you're, quote unquote, free. What does that mean? And so just this morning, I was pulling together a few quotes uh, for this interview of some formerly enslaved Texans, how how they described this process. And one fellow named Felix Haywood said, everybody went wild. Right off, folks started on the move. They seemed to want to get closer to freedom, so they knew what it was, like it was a place or a city. And so many people, they just, they just left. When they, when they, they heard about it, they just hit the road. Um, like Molly Harrell, another formerly enslaved Texan, <clears throat> she had lived near Palestine. She said, quote, me and mother left right off. Most everybody else went with us. We all walked down the road singing and shouting to beat the band. So they just... The concept of freedom, it, it was it a place, you know, it, it was difficult for some of them to grasp or even that, you know, did they, did the old rules not apply? 
And you see that in, in uh, another instance here, the, the, it, it was a jarring sense to some folks. So for example, Andrew Goodman of Smith County over in East Texas, remember that some folks he knew kind of struggled with the news, quote, when they wanted to leave the place, they still went up to the big house for a pass. They just couldn't understand about the freedom. Mm-hmm. Old master said, you don't need no pass. All you got to do is take your foot in your hand and go. So I don't know what take your foot in your hand means, but basically it was you're free and you can go. Outstanding. Outstanding. So, <laughs> it's really powerful to hear contemporary realizations. You know, I cannot imagine after those horrific conditions you're talking about, the idea of freedom must be something that's incomprehensible or the depth of it that's incomprehensible to any of us that have not experienced such a, a reality as their ancestors and their, their relatives did. Yeah. And, you know, as this, as Mr. Haywood said, Felix Haywood said, one other quick quote, we soon found out that freedom could make folks proud, but it didn't make them rich. Very good. Yeah. And we've done a number of shows on that of how that these forms of discrimination have just taken new forms over years. And certainly there is progress, but there's certainly also, as we started the show off with a profound lack of progress that we wanted to end the show with. As a closing and final note, you know, Lance, there are a couple of quotes that you said earlier in the show tonight that are really worthy of examining in our quest to deconstruct the profound unfairnesses of oppression, which this show is dedicated to. One is, you said it's all about control and trying to extract free labor out of enslaved people. That's what slavery is about. And this is instructive. If you are not afraid to follow the implications of this statement with respect to the current dominant market system that rules the Western world right up until today, when you look at today's Western advanced nations, it was through slavery or unpaid labor as colonial powers that built so much of their wealth and extraordinary accumulated wealth. In other words, upon enslaved labor, the wealth of nations that make up the international power structure has been built. Whether it was the French, as we already discussed in St. Dominique and its other colonies, or whether it was the UK, where the sun never set on its immense empire, or whether it was the colonial wealth accumulation through conquest and slavery that built the fortunes of the colonial powers that preceded them, namely the Spanish and Portuguese conquests. Those fortunes were built on slave labor unpaid labor, or free labor, as you said. Here in the United States, you have argued the same and even alluded to King Cotton, which depended on slave labor for much of the 19th century wealth accumulation here in the United States. But what is just as important is the continuation of this accumulation of wealth in our nation's history through underpaid labor. Yeah, there's no longer slavery, and you do get a wage, but it's only a fraction of the value and wealth that your labor creates, from sharecroppers to factory and present-day workers and the near abolition of genuine trade union representation. Our workers continue to create a certain value for their employers, but are only paid a small fraction of the value that they create. The rest of that unpaid value is profit. In fact, arguably, that is why our foreign policy is always backing governments which deny significant quality of life improvements and decent wages to their people and allow industry to pollute with impunity 
because it reduces overhead costs for multinational corporations and therefore increase their profits while promoting greater wealth inequality. I mean, check it out. These egregious levels of wealth inequality in the United States today essentially are inflated by the inverse demise of our middle class. Essentially, it is a wealth transfer from the middle and lower classes in the United States ending up largely in the pockets of the top 1%. That is what is happening to our middle class, despite the smoke and mirrors that deflect us from this reality. Lance, thank you so much for your time today. One last time, if people want to access your podcast, the website, please. It is theotherside1865.com. Very good. Lance Cooper, thank you for your work. And we continue to, well, I will continue to visit your site and appreciate some of the other historical reflections those episodes encompass. Thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thank you. And I thank your listeners for tuning in. Very good. Okay. Well, we'll see you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid-back grooves, both old and new, nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week.